Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I am a Daggett mom. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I am getting too old for this Felder card. We are going to talk about the original version of Battlestar Galactica today on our agenda for future episodes, Falcon and Winter Soldier, Altered Carbon. I think we're doing the book and not the series. Yes. That is correct. And Starship Troopers, the movie. Yes. Yes. Um, I have already started a little bit of a discussion of Falcon and Winter Soldier on our Discord, which... Dan, they've been clamoring for you to get on the Discord. I will get on the Discord, I promise. I, I swear to God. They were it's the really, end of the semester. They are really hungry for our opinions, which is, of course, like for two people who do that for a living, like it's, just, it's so gratifying. Okay. You want opinions, <laughs> yeah, we can give them. We Not have a so many opinions. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> this is another sci-fi podcast that actually I've only listened to occasionally, but it's called Our Opinions Are Correct, which I do think is a great name for a sci-fi <laughs> podcast. It's from Annalene Newitz and uh, Charlie. Jane Anders, both of whom are great sci-fi writers in and of. Oh yeah, Newitz is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I relied on her I a went, lot actually for my zombie book. Get this, Dan. I went to graduate school with Anna Lee. <gasps> I didn't know that. Oh, and that's pretty. Do cool. you know okay. how we knew each other in graduate school? We weren't in the same program. No. How did you know each other? We both worked on the same cultural Marxism zine <laughs> called Ready. Yes. Bad yeah. subjects. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Oh, my grad school. My grad school days are now flooding back. Okay. So that's how I know Anna Lee. Um, I think we also did some like activism of some kind, but mainly I remember meetings where we would talk about, you know, like urban outfitters as a commodified cultural descent object. <laughs> so, I know, so, I this. <laughs> so to continue, we need to be on the Discord channel. Both of us, they really love yes. our um, opinions, or at least want to hear them. And okay. they are also asking that we do a watch party with them, which I think could be fun. So, Possibly, yes. Uh, that sounds interesting. We'll see. So uh, this is a good reason for people to become patrons, Dan. Dan, how exactly. can people become a patron? You can become a patron uh, by going to patreon.com slash space the nation. You don't have to give that much money, but you can just give a little bit of money. And then you get access to a variety of things, including patrons-only uh, podcast episodes, which we still need to schedule, as well as Q&As every month, which we are doing the first weekend of every month, I believe the first Saturday. Uh, so the next one is coming up May 2nd? May 1st. May 1st. That sounds right. Oh, right. May Day. That's right. May Day. Yes. Now. I'm very excited May about Day. May Day. And Dan, you had an idea for a new series. Uh, so yes. far, we just have our Cannon Fodder series, although we have great ideas for all kinds of series. But right now oh, yes. we're officially starting a new one. Tell yes. us. Yes. Let me uh, roll. Hold on. We are now uh, we are now unfurling our new series, which we are calling, or I am calling, Schlock or Awe. So think of it in some ways as the doppelganger to Cannon Fodder. If Cannon Fodder is taking something that is generally recognized as great or canonical sci-fi and, you know, critiquing it and seeing does it deserve to stay up there, what we are doing with Schlock or Awe is sort of going through the trash can of sci-fi, the stuff that is considered day class A or tacky, and considering whether or not we can actually recycle it. Is it really just vintage? So in this series, we tackle a piece of science fiction or genre work that has been perceived as bad or so bad it's good and mine it for what it has to say about international relations and figure out whether it still deserves to be considered schlock or if there is something of value here. It can be recovered into yes. awe. 
Yes. And I will add that that I have a, a bias here because when I wrote Theories of International Politics and Zombies, I had to read a lot of zombie books and watch a lot of zombie films. Now, I'm not going to lie. A lot of them are not very good. But the one thing I did realize after doing all of that is that even the schlockiest piece of zombie, you know, crap has usually one or two things that are legitimately interesting. And so there are ways in which, yes, obviously we have limited amounts of time and should focus on the things that are really, really good. But occasionally sort of bargain diving is worth it because you occasionally come up with something that is that is honestly interesting. And so it seems worth doing that for what we are going to do, which is the version one of Battlestar Galactica. So not the reboot that appeared on Sci-Fi that is a fantastic uh, television program, widely acknowledged to be, but rather the original 1978-1979 series that lasted for, I think, all of 24 episodes. (laughs) And you have the story behind the story, and it's actually a particularly interesting one. It is. So Battlestar Galactica was created by Glenn A. Larson, who was responsible for an awful lot of 1970s, 1980s television, including Magnum P.I. and Knight Rider. Um, I'm going to be honest, the best way to describe Glenn Larson, the, the polite way to describe him might be a hack. The less polite way might be that he was a plagiarist. James Garner, in his autobiography, tells about how he sued uh, Larson for cribbing from the Rockford Files for some of uh, Larson's lesser shows, and also claims that he punched him at one point on the set of the Rockford Files. And I am not going to doubt James Garner uh, on this. I think that's that's a valid story. Harlan Ellison, the uh, acknowledged uh, science fiction writer uh, who wrote what many consider to be the greatest Star Trek episode ever, nicknamed Glenn Larson Glenn Larceny. Uh, so that's really all you need to know about Larson. Now, that said, it is also widely acknowledged that Battlestar Galactica was his idea. He didn't steal it from anyone. He originally had the idea uh, for BSG back in 1968. Star Trek writer Gene L. Kuhn uh, helped him with it. And in the wake of Star Wars, which came out in 1977, suddenly a whole lot of interest in science fiction, including television networks. And so Larson actually managed to command a $1 million per episode budget for Battlestar Galactica. Which, let us just emphasize that's an insane amount of money considering the time like it was the most that's amount of money that you could make a series today like not yeah no it, the it, same it kind was, of series but you could do a series for that right i mean it, it, it was the most expensive television series at its time and i, I think budget wise you might are i mean it's in some way sort of game of thrones level budgets yeah. no it's totally uh, good. game of, of thrones is done. currently now four million an episode yeah. i think i think yeah and or was uh, hopefully right. maybe is who knows well, we'll see. Or the reboot, yeah. whatever. You know, yeah. It's also worth noting, by the way, that again, consistent with the plagiarism theme, 20th Century Fox sued Universal, which was the producer of Battlestar Galactic, for alleged similarities to Star Wars. Although, to be honest, I think the, the most obvious similarities are the fact that uh, the special effects coordinator, John Dykstra, literally went from Star Wars to BSG. That was his subsequent project. Larson was a Mormon, and it would be safe to say there is some Mormonism sprinkled throughout uh, version one of Battlestar Galactica. There is. Yeah. So... Among other things, just sort of the surface level things, the, the in the backstory to Battlestar Galactica, uh, the 12 colonies originate from uh, the planet Cobol. This is a play on the planet Kolob in uh, Mormon theology, which is described in, in Joseph Smith's Book of Abraham as essentially where God dwells. There are the 12 colonies, obviously, you know, patterned to some extent on the 12 tribes of, of Israel from the Old Testament. The opening of the show, which I, I love, I will never 
apologize for loving it, talks about, you know, ponderously, you know, where do we think the Egyptians or the Toltecs or the Mayans came from? And that is apparently somewhat resonant with Mormon theology in terms of the idea of, of potentially alien There's also, there's like a lost tribe part yeah. of Mormon theology too. So that's definitely here. Right. Which also, and, and you explains- could say that this is sort of one of the genesis of the ancient aliens, you know, yeah. <laughs> genre, which I love, but also <laughs> is re- not so recently, though. But um, there is an acknowledgement these days that the ancient aliens genre is sort of racist <laughs> to, yeah. to seek explanations for why people who aren't white build amazing things and not just be like, maybe they did it. Instead of asking, could it be? Aliens? Or in this case... <laughs> I'm not saying it was aliens. I'm not saying it was but aliens. But it could have been aliens. <laughs> yes. But. Or it could have been... I don't know. What What are these people? Are they... Are they um, uh, Capricans? Yeah. Uh, you mean the, the You mean the, yeah, What the would we call the them? I mean, they weren't... Yeah, what would we call the people? I think we call them the colonists. We call colonists. them colonists. Because okay. one of the things that... Remember, one of the things that's clear right. in the first episode is that they're coming from all 12 of the colonies. That's right. right. It's not just... I mean, we Capricans a little bit more, but, you know, not okay. necessarily. And the show was originally called, apparently, before Battlestar Galactica, Adama's Ark. And obviously, Adama is a play on Adam. This also leads into another interesting point, which is, as it turns out, there's a lot of Mormon sci-fi, which I did not really truly appreciate, you know, before this. I mean, Mormonism go- is discussed in The Expanse, obviously, uh, in the form of the great ship that the Tycho Station winds up commandeering or building and then commandeering. It's mentioned in Starship Troopers. Orson Scott Card, who wrote Ender's Game, is a Mormon. He also, by the way, hated Battlestar Galactica, apparently. He thought Larson's, you know, sort of Mormonism thing was, was superficial and uh, didn't think it was Can good. I just jump in and say one of the reasons why he might have hated it is that Larson's mm-hmm. Mormonism is a lot more ecumenical and yes. generous than <laughs> in the political ideology than Orson. Yeah, that's one of the interesting... So, like, in, re- in retrospect, one of the interesting things about this show, I thought, was that uh, I think at the time and, and still now, it's often thought of as a conservative show in that it's... And we'll get to this in terms of, like, oh, my God, how can you be so naive and not realize the sort of growing threat and so forth? And there's that there. There's no denying that. But at the same time, it, it, particularly compared to when I remember it, it is also not completely conservative. It has a very capacious view of, you know, humanity, as it were. It reminds me a lot of the the Latter-day Saints people that I know who aren't conservative. It's still very Mormon. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it has, yes, a, a thread of generosity that's actually part of Mormon theology as well. And I want to talk more about that later. One last point, which is to say, as much as Larson is obviously putting Mormonism in the show, he's also borrowing from a lot of other things. You know, the the uniforms clearly borrow from the Egyptians. The names go from Greek to Egyptian to whatever you want. So there's no denying there's Mormonism pleasant, present. He's mixing and matching a lot here. And I just want to say, I'm really, of course, and once you find out that there's a Mormon sort of angle to the show, I think it makes the show better. Because I, I think it is incredibly earnest in its exploration of themes of faith. And I, I think knowing that he was being like, there's that makes it less schlocky, yeah. basically. I, also, I, mean, I, I would think add- earnestness can save a lot of schlock. If people are really <laughs> trying, I'm, I'm serious. If people are yeah. really trying to say something, even mm-hmm. if they don't succeed completely or they say it awkwardly, it, it elevates it a little bit for me or makes me more generous towards it. And the other thing I was going to say about Mormonism is, and I say this as someone who who 
feels a, a lot of sympathy for Latter-day Saints because they have been literally the target of genocide by yeah. the American government and have struggled against bias and you know bigotry for much of the church's existence. It has a very sci-fi feel to it. I mean, that's one reason you can love it in a way, because yeah. the imagine Joseph Smith's imagination or the imagination of the angel Moroni, mm-hmm. <laughs> either way, does have this fantastical feel to it that is more apparent because the religion is so recent, obviously. But there is like a a wonderment, let's say, in I think mm. the theology of, of LDS that yeah. is parallel to and it matches what we love about ways, science fiction. Yeah, no, it does match the wonder of the show. And I would also add that if you really are interested in Mormon theology, there is a, another episode in the series featuring a character, I believe, named Count Ibley that plums even more deeply, I think, the Mormon theology element of it. So it's worth watching. Okay, that said, uh, we now move to the important category of why is this viewed as schlock or why might it be awesome? So I will start here. Uh, it's viewed as schlock for a variety of reasons. First, despite the expense devoted to the show, that that it was the most expensive show uh, on television at the time, they only had like 10 space battle shots that they endlessly recycle throughout the series. Now, to be fair to Larson, apparently originally it was planned as a miniseries, but then it became so popular that they decided to create an ongoing show. But, you know, you would have thought they would have taken some of that money and put it into more space battles. Indeed, Larson was such a, a cheapskate that he actually uses some of the same scenes that you see in Battlestar Galactica that you see in Buck Rogers, which is the other show that he executive produced about a year or two later, also sort of sci-fi themed. We both watch the show uh, by uh, via Amazon Prime. It, it theory, at some point, it should be available on Peacock, and it was for a brief time, but no longer. And one of the fun things in, in looking at Amazon Prime is that the the sort of goofs to general tra- trivia ratio when you look at the extras is off the charts. There are many, many plot holes, continuity errors, you name it. So, like, you know, there are, like, shots of computer screens that if you look closely, you realize that doesn't bear any resemblance to what they say they're seeing on the screen, for example. Um, And also, it's the late 70s, and I'm not going to lie, the gender politics are uh, not great. Although not quite as bad as I remembered. Um, I thought it was going to be even worse. And outside of Starbuck, um, I did not, I actually didn't think it was that awful. But but I will uh, defer to some extent to Anna on this. Um, In terms of awesome... It is worth noting that that this is the the precursor to the Battlestar Galactica reboot, which is generally and widely acknowledged to be uh, one of the best shows of this century. Second, this show invented sci-fi swearing, which I think is awesome. You know, there are a variety of words that that then didn't reappear in in, uh, the reboot wisely. But, you know, the idea of frack being fuck, uh, the idea of Felger Carb being, I think, bullshit. I'm not entirely sure what Felger Carb is supposed to be. But, you know, it, it basically created sort of this language where you could actually have characters swear even though they aren't actually swearing. But most That seems very Mormon to me, by the way. That's true. That is extremely Mormon. And also, finally, I'm just this might be exclusive to me as a heterosexual male nerd. I am convinced that the cultural acme of nerd culture in this century was on 30 Rock when Salma Hayek's character at one point takes off her coat and is wearing a What's the Frack t-shirt underneath it. Anything that led to that moment is good, Anna, and I will not have it questioned. (laughs) I mean... I will probably mention this again later, but one big argument for it in general is that it what it did for the rest of culture, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. in not just, I think, uh, as a precursor to the um, version 2 or Battlestar uh, Galactica 2.0, but being a serious and schlocky show that tried to investigate big themes, like Star Trek. Star Trek did the same thing, mm-hmm. but it kept up a continuity of that practice, I think, and popularized yeah. it. So, But I will now speak of the things that also bothered me. Yes. No, no, please um, go. Go to town. The robes. <laughs> why? 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 Why is the Council of Twelve or the whatever of Twelve wearing robes? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's quasi-religious. And then I mean, the why other... does the Supreme Court wear robes? I don't have a problem with the robes. The oh, robes okay, okay. Yeah. But he... yeah. tell me this. Why okay. are most of the Council of Twelve dressed like Franciscan monks, but Adama is dressed like a disco mall cop? I have no answer to that. Also, I don't know if you know, like, there's this one shot, like, the, the literally the opening shot of the Council 12, like, one of them is clearly dressed in sort of Middle Eastern garb. Yeah. One of, you know, it's it's not good that, yeah, I Although I, I can't answer that. my own question because Adama is probably wearing a dress uniform. I guess, but the, also this is where, but like, But it does, again, it is weird, right? Like, yeah. you no, know, no, no, if, and, if, if, if. Yeah. A general was nominated to the Supreme Court. I don't think he would wear his uniform. I'm going to grant you that. And also, like, it's not clear, like, does each of the Council of Twelve have their own battle star? Does only Adama have a battle star? Like, there's a lot of, like, just hand-waving here. There's no denying that. Uh, The costumes in general can be comical. I had forgotten about the pharaoh helmets. (laughs) (laughs) which you know so viper pilots you know in the show wear these helmets where that yeah they look like pharaohs there's no other way to put it uh and the fact that they're called viper pilots also i wonder why they didn't call them asp i guess because you can't say (laughs) asp on television without it sounding like swearing viper just sounds cooler the dress uniforms that have capes maybe more dress uniforms should have capes i don't know but that did make me laugh um the acting is not great no Uh, for some reason the Female characters are especially bad. Perhaps they were cast for reasons other than their acting. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Boxy. Just not going to get into too much detail, but Boxy. Um, not a good part of the show. And I I find Muffet terrifying. I really do. Oh, Anna, I, I have a detail that is going to scare the crap out of you even more about Muffet. It's going to horrify you. So I did not realize this. But yes, I remember like Muffet, which is the, in theory, the computer dog slash daggett on the show. It's widely mocked. What I did not realize until researching for this episode is that the way they did Moffat was that they put a chimpanzee in that suit, which is just so wrong on multiple it's levels. It's so cruel. Like, yeah. It- that just is cruel on on obviously a couple of different levels. And then, yeah. you know, as a Daggett mom today, the hand waving <laughs> around Boxy losing his Daggett is like, no, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You know, his dog died. And also, this is something that, yeah, again, as a pet person, I always think about on sci-fi shows, which is where are the pets in this mass <laughs> exodus? You know, I would grab my dog. You know, like, I mean, of course I would grab my dog. I assume you would grab your dog. Someone in your family would be like, no, I'm not getting on the ship without my dog. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But to get to the good stuff, Mm -hmm. like I said, there's a very sincere exploration of faith, um, which Mm -hmm. I like. And some of the acting is actually very good. Mm -hmm. Lauren Green, I think, is great. Uh, Terry Carter, who plays Colonel Ty. Ty. Is fantastic. He just has gravitas, man. I mean, like, they, just, they yeah. both just bring to yeah. the role um, gravitas, yeah. but also like it's a very believable relationship. Yeah. Actually, much mm-hmm. like in version two, 
Like that right. relationship yeah, is yeah. a really central to the story. Yeah. Um, Ray Milland, who is, mm-hmm. you know, a legend of the female characters, I found Jane Seymour to be acting more than perhaps some of the other women. <laughs> it's racially diverse in a way that actual LDS churches are not so much. Mm. Um, although credit where credit is due, the Mormon church has done a lot to kind of reckon with what was historically a pretty racist kind of right. belief system. And I will say as a kid, I found the Cylons to be really genuinely scary. The voice, I think, still counts as scary. Like that, and the computerized voice. there's something about yeah. that roving red eye yeah. that really still kind of is eerie. Yeah. And it, that still worked for me. Yeah. And I guess I'll, I'll go first, actually, just to segue into like my history yeah. with the show. Mm-hmm. So, uh, God, I no wonder I don't remember a lot of it because I was like eight. Yeah. But I remember it being, I believe it was on, was it on Sunday nights? That might be right. I honestly don't I sort remember. of have this memory of it being one of the shows that my parents and I kind of like had a little tradition around. Like we're going to oh, sit really? down and like watch this show together. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. 60 Minutes was the other one. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Like that, that last, those, like that, that just suddenly explains so much about you, Anna. Like I, I, I'm I learning know, a lot. Right? This is great. Yeah. We would make milkshakes. And grilled Aww. cheese sandwiches and watch, like, there was a few shows. I remember this was one of them. I think, like, Wild Kingdom was another one, which actually you have the, tri- you know, the triumvirate of my personality. <laughs> 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 Between Wild Kingdom 16 minutes and Battlestar Galactica. Like, that's me. <laughs> I like um, the idea. By the way, I, this is something I think we should actually popularize. I like the idea of like we have family trees. What we, what all individuals need is a television family tree, which is one of the television shows at various stages of your life that you watch that influence you as an adult. I think that would and be these were like very young. This is when I was like yeah. obviously pretty young. Like other yeah. shows came became more important later. Right. Obviously, yeah. So Dan, um, what is your personal history? So, I'm a touch older than you, but I was roughly the same age. You know, like, I think I was 10 when I watched this show. Um, I remember, like, getting really into it because, like, I liked the idea of there being science fiction. I I, I recognized the schlockiness as the beginning. But, and maybe this might be a descent from you, I still remember thinking that those colonial military jackets, the suede ones, were cool as fuck. I love those jackets. Pharaoh helmets can be weird and funny. Yeah, but while the jackets being cool, like I, actually I wanted still one of those jackets. Ja- I would, yeah, I would wear one of those jackets. Okay, today. I wanted one of those jackets as a kid, yeah, and I, I like watching it again. It's like those jackets. I don't think. It, I think you wearing one of those jackets today might not work. I'm sorry. I just, <gasps> oh, just saying. Oh, I don't know purpose. if it quite. Like it would be, it would definitely be like a step out of your your general look. Let's say. <laughs> it would be fair. expanding. You know. The kind of clothes that Dan wears. You know what? I think in this pandemic world, I, I might try to get a, a little more YOLO. <laughs> At least it would get uh, me so. out of sweatshirts if I wear it. So Exactly. There you go. All right. Exactly. All right, Dan, having gone through all the preliminaries, would you please set the table for us? Okay, let us start with Act 1. I should add that if you want to watch this, uh, you can do so on Amazon Prime. The first three episodes represent the pilot, which apparently also, after the series was over, got released as a theatrical movie uh, in a lot of places. It's a little weird. So, Act 1, which we will call Manic Pixie Cylon Attack. Beyond the heavens, humans reside in 12 colonies. Uh, They have been fighting the Cylons, a race of machines created by a reptilian species that are now extinct. 
A peace treaty has been negotiated by Baltar, one of the members of the Council of Twelve, uh, and supported by the rest of the Council, but Adama is suspicious. The colonial fleet of Battlestars is rendezvousing with the Cylons to sign this peace treaty. Everyone is super enthused by this. Meanwhile, Adama's sons, uh, Apollo, played by Richard Hatch, and his younger brother, Zach, played by Rick Springfield, which I did not realize again until I watched this, go out on patrol and encounter an armada of Cylon fighters. Apollo escapes and warns his father. Zack dies in the process of trying to escape. Despite Adama's entreaties, uh, the president refuses to launch any attack fighters on Baltar's advice. Uh, the Cylon surprise attack decimates the fleet. Only Adama's ship, the Galactica, uh, survives. Oh, and Baltar apparently had clearly sold out all the colonies to the Cylons. Anna's world building goes, I thought this was pretty interesting. What say you? I think the fact that the reboot stays so faithful to this plot, which I hadn't realized, is a testament to the plot. You know, it's a good one. You know, it's a, a little ham-fisted here yes. and there. Yes. <laughs> and it's very ham-fisted in some places, absolutely. Yeah, but, um, yeah. I would say I prefer the Baltar of uh, 2.0. Yeah. The, the Baltar the- of, of 1.0 is pretty obviously like a bad guy and completely unsympathetic and sniveling coward, et cetera, et cetera. He's and Baltar of... is a sniveling coward in version two, but better actor, more complicated story, yeah. et cetera, no, et cetera. There's no and you understand that, right. why he's doing it. Actually, that's the big thing is you understand yeah. he's not just doing it out of being a sniveling coward. Right. Like no, no, no. The, 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 like this, the, the version one Baltar needed a handlebar mustache. That would have been the only thing that he was missing. <laughs> twirled, from twirled. Yes, exactly. And of course, we are first introduced to the idea that, my God, humans are gullible. What the fuck? How did they get this far? That is the question that you have to ask yourself in watching this show. <laughs> it's like how they repeat a few times that this is the seventh hour. Seventh millennium. Seventh, seventh millennium? millennium. Yes. How did they get to the seventh millennium with this level of gullibility? That is the question. I don't know. Well, they're about to be uh, purged. So we go to Act 2, the Holocaust. Uh, Adama, worried that the Cylon base ships, uh, which are the Cylon equivalent of Battlestars, uh, are nowhere to be seen during the attack on the fleet, fears that they are attacking the colonies, which are obviously defenseless because apparently they idiotically brought all the Battlestars to the peace treaty. He takes the Galactica to Caprica, but arrives too late as the Cylons have decimated the 12 colonies. Uh, Adama lands on the planet with Apollo, but his home is destroyed and his wife is gone, presumed dead. They encounter survivors who demand answers. Adama tells them to tell others to find ships and launch into space, and the Galactica will protect them. A ragtag fugitive fleet of 220 ships led by Adama will now seek what Adama describes as the 13th colony according to their mythical texts, which is a shining planet known as, wait for it, Earth. Anna, Ron Moore, who is responsible for the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, said that he thought the first act was pretty gripping. And I think he's right, but dear God, the plot holes. Why does Adama abandon his fighters without telling them? Why does he just go to his house as opposed to, I don't know, like the seat of government? And I love this... Let the word go out, he tells these, like, pitiful band of people around him, and then we see all the ships take off. I mean, that that's shortcutting a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I would say condenses to the point of confusion. And, yes. and <laughs> this is a good place to point out that Ron Moore, what he, you can see clearly what he did to make the show better. Um, yeah. One of the things is he stretched out the timeline. Right. Like, I believe this first three shows is almost the first season 
of mm-hmm. version 2.0. Right. And so they're able to fill a lot of these plot holes. Right. right? Isn't it like if memory serves, there's a character in, in the first season of BSG that's on Caprica the entire time, I think. I, I, I know it takes longer to evacuate. Yeah. Um, I know yeah. that they they spend more time on the human catastrophe side of right. it. Right, that's the other part of this. And also yeah. on the moral questions of who do you take with you and who do you leave behind, yeah. which they kind of gesture at here, but don't really kind of... You know, no, in some ways, or... one of the frustrating <laughs> things about this show was that there were there were genuinely some interesting ideas in this, and they're like mentioned very briefly, and then they just move on, and you're like, oh man, you could have mined that ore, you know? And I will point out that um, one of the benefits of having stretched out the timeline uh, mm-hmm. for version 2.0 is they couldn't have a boxy <laughs> <laughs> because the child actor would age too quickly, would age faster than the show is moving. Yes. Among other things, that that's one reason why they didn't have a boxy. The other reason is it, I think it was widely recognized that, you know, that kind of character is super annoying for the most part. So yes, I will point out also they have a lot of advanced technology, but not waterproof mascara. <laughs> there's a scene of one of the there's a lot of Sigourney Weaver characters also on the um, deck of the oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meaning, Athena I think uh, well a lot of women sister, yeah. you know repeating what the computer said or oh oh, or, oh, oh. I was thinking Ripley. You mean you mean from Galaxy Quest? Yes. Okay. I mean fair from enough. Galaxy Quest. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Although I think actually the the interesting thing about the women who do like the call signs and the, and mm-hmm. the directing of traffic of whatnot, the air traffic controllers of the yeah. Battlestar, mm-hmm. is that they're treated. It's weird. This is a this is a tiny thing, but they're taken seriously. Like it's right. It no, is, there is this. It's, there, it's, it's not really the, the 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 Sigourney Weaver character. I mean, Athena is sort of like the uh, Sigourney Weaver character. But for the most it, part, those like brief, tiny roles are actually yeah. like, you know, it's a working battleship and those are right. working women. No, no, no. Like I would say it's got one foot. The, the show has one foot in some really bad gender stuff, like, you know, particularly with Starbuck. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But then you're right. I was ready to cringe more than I did rewatching this because you're right. The the characters on the bridge are taken seriously and, and they don't have as much of the sort of useless role. And they're not wearing like thigh high miniskirts either. Right. Exactly. It's even better. There's than that Star terrible Trek. scene where Athena gets undressed. Oh, my God. That is so bad. That was I had forgotten that scene and it it's bad on multiple levels it's yeah so there's it's, this it's, scene. Un, it's like weird like why is she undressing in an empty locker room and right. then but they do maybe gesture at the fact that like in the in version 2.0 they have the co-ed locker rooms because uh, starbuck just does walk right in <laughs> and is a woman in the oh that's right oh yeah 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 um, yeah. Yes. No, but it also like you were talking about not great acting that that is not Dirk Benedict's finest acting in that scene. And it, it really was in some ways should have been the scene in which you want to presumably do that. Now, I grant you the writing was also horrible in that scene. So like just it was it was the schlockiest part of the show. Yeah. Or and I would say if, if you want to avoid the schlock of this show, you might turn off closed captioning because <laughs> there are some like asides and background dialogue that are laughably bad my favorite being the scene on caprica where there's the mob coming and someone goes there must be food somewhere and then someone else goes i'm hungry (laughs) (laughs) yes okay kind of a little careless with the extras but um we will move along yes So let's get to act three, which is, hey, logistics matter. 
The ragtag fleet is having some issues, like the fact that they don't have a lot of food and there is inequality within the fleet. Uh, Apollo and his fellow pilots, Starbuck and Boomer, inspect other ships and discover some people going without water. Um, and they also unfortunately discover stores of food that are contaminated, which means their food demands are going to increase even more. Some civilians are getting mad at dirty social leaders <laughs> like Cassiopeia. On the fancy ship The Rising Star, a wealthy dude named Silas Yuri, uh, played by Ray Milland, uh, is having a low-key orgy when Apollo busts in uh, and orders the food redistributed. Very low-key. Yeah, it's not Yeah, it's not a big not deal. Not really but, even know, orgy. It's just kind of like there's some pretty women walking around. Right. <laughs> Lying around also, but like, yes, fair enough. As I said, low-key was the stress there. The Council of Twelve uh, debate, uh, the revised, I assume, Council of Twelve, debate where they need to go for food, fuel, and supplies. Apollo, seeing that his father is not really leading the Council, proposes a risky passage through the Straits of Matagon uh, to the planet planet Carillon. Afterward, Apollo tells his dad to basically get his shit together and lead, or Sire Yuri will usurp him. Uh, the risky gambit through the Straits of Matagon works, and they arrive at Carillon to find that the mining colony now also houses a Las Vegas-style casino in which all is well. Or is it? Meanwhile, the Cylon Imperious leader goes back on the bargain with Baltar. Baltar uh, apparently sold out the colonies with the premise that he would at least get to spare his colony and rule it. And that does not happen, and it looks like he's about to die. Uh, so, Anna, I bet you really liked the inequality rift during this act. I did. I did. Yes, I felt like it was written especially for me. I really did. <laughs> no, um, actually, it was a little unsatisfying, to be honest. <laughs> I do want to point out something that I only just realized, um, and it's another one of the not very subtle sort of naming conventions in the show, mm -hmm. which is Ursary. Silas Yuri. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yes, Usury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's good. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. No. I, and I didn't really realize it until I heard you say so his maybe, names together. Maybe it's not that subtle, or maybe it is subtler than we realize, but yes. Oh, yeah, subtler than we realize, let's say. Yeah. Um, the reason why I found it unsatisfying is I kind of want to know how the economy works on these, you know, 220 ships that have just made it barely alive from their colonies. Um <laughs> Because it's not a Snowpiercer situation, right? No. Like, Snowpiercer, the class system is a legacy of capitalism because some people paid more money to be in a nicer place, right? right. Like, your injustice still exists, but yeah. it is there's a logic to it. Right. And here, like, if everyone's just scrambling to, like, get on whatever ship they can, it seems... I mean, you could argue that's how strong the class system is, I guess. Mm -hmm. But also, at the same time, when Apollo wants to fix it, he's just like, come on. Like, we'll just get on this other ship. Like, there's no no one enforcing anything. Yeah, this is where, like, admittedly, to be fair, like, you would assume it's literally a ragtag fugitive fleet and, like, they were scrambling. And so, like, I don't, you know, this is, like, literally, presumably the first census being taken of what the hell's going on where. And yet you, you would expect there to be, like, and this is a bad plotting where, like, this, the core leadership, like Ty and Adama, are aware that this is a problem, and yet they're not doing a goddamn thing about it. That seems very strange. It is strange, and also, like I said, it, I mean, it seems like, you know, we are kind of, you know, class is something that is really hard to break out of, hmm. but um, you would think that they would pool their resources more quickly, yeah. just saying. Um, also, this is a place where I feel like you sort of see this interesting kind of progressive Mormonism yeah. rear its head, which is the Mormons have a very, very strong community ethic, mm -hmm. like a share and share alike ethic. At the same time, they are very much capitalists. Mm -hmm. They <laughs> are 
perfectly okay with yeah. making money and also with um, seeing success as kind of a mark of goodness. And so I think that si- Silas Yuri mm-hmm. <laughs> is a bad rich guy, but I don't think that they think that rich people are bad. Moving on. Imperious leader is funny because I don't think they actually mean imperious. <laughs> and then even funnier is I took to calling him in my head the great and terrible Afro because <laughs> that's what that's all you see is like this weird like Afro. And then I'm not sure what he's supposed to look like. But um, but anyway, the great and terrible Afro. Uh, the other thing I will say is, yes, we should legalize sex work. So good on Battlestar Galactica for that. Way to go, um, social leaders. Yes. Uh, I hope they're unionized. <laughs> <laughs> I do had this weird thing like throwing in aliens seemed odd. Like all of a sudden there's aliens, you know? Yeah. Uh, once you get to Carillon, you start seeing weird aliens and it's not really talked about all that much. Yeah. I mean, we know that alien races existed because of the Cylons, but still, yes, it's right. unclear. And then there's something that the great and terrible Afro says that made me <laughs> curious, which is he says something like, as long as one human remains alive, the alliance is under threat. And I was like, what alliance? <laughs> like, yeah, this is what? where like the terminology of the show is a little fast and loose. Like it's it's an empire, is an alliance? What is it? It should seems to me it's clearly an empire. Yes, I do love inverting the whole soldiers in the jungle who don't know the war is over trope into hedonists in a casino <laughs> who don't realize the war has started. Um, that amused me greatly, even though again the acting in this part is not great. I will no. also say, where are they spending the money? If they're winning all the time and apparently everything is free, what's the point of the money that they're winning? And except, of course, out of habit, people are covetous, I guess. <laughs> and then um, Colonel Ty has a line. Some of our people down there are getting downright obese, which <laughs> is a funny line yes. <laughs> in and of itself. And also screws with the timeline a little bit. Like, you How know, long have they been there and so how forth? How long have yeah. they been there? All right. Yeah. Um, moving on. Dan. And we get to the final act, or it's a trap. Adama thinks that Carillon is too good to be true. Sire Yuri, however, thinks that the humans should stay there and disarm, thereby no longer posing a threat to the Cylons. He plans a big ceremony on the planet to honor Apollo, Starbuck, and Boomer, who navigated uh, the passage to get them to Carillon, to persuade the people to stay. You won't believe this, but Adama was right. It turns out that the Cylons are already at Carillon and have cut a deal with the Ovioids, I think is their name, uh, which is an insect-like race that is simultaneously running the casino, but then apparently harvesting humans for blood and stuff. Apollo and Starbuck discover the Cylons and set Filer to the Tylium, which is the sort of dilithium of Battlestar Galactica uh, world. Adama, preparing for this contingency, uh, evacs the humans and repulses the Cylons. Apollo and Starbuck destroy the spaceship and blow up the planet to boot. Uh, Baltar's life is spared by the new Cylon leader because the old one was destroyed uh, on the base ship when Carillon explodes. And the Cylon leader apparently now wants to make peace with the humans. He gives Baltar a base ship to find the humans and make his proposal and scene. Anna, in terms of occupational health and safety, it sure seemed like a miracle that Carillon never blew up before, given how flammable the entire planet apparently was. <laughs> you know, OSHA would have a real problem, I think, with the whole mining operation there. Yeah, there's some plot holes here. And also, I literally wrote down, the first thing I wrote down when they got to Carillon was, mm-hmm. surely these things eat people. <laughs> 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 I didn't remember the plot, but I was just like, huh, too good to be true. I bet they yeah. eat people. 
<laughs> so, so listen, so listeners, just remember, if it's too good to be true, probably someone is eating people. I did uh, laugh out loud at the Cylon soldier telling the second great and terrible Afro. Yeah. Um, when the great and terrible Afro says, this was supposed to be a surprise. He says, deadpan. <laughs> Apparently, it was not as big a surprise as we had hoped for. <laughs> Which I want to believe was intended to be funny, like because it, it's real funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have many questions about how exactly the ovioid uh, food chain works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does seem like if people keep coming to this place and then disappearing and never returning, where are they? Like, I, like who is the tourism promoter for Carillon? Is what I want to know. <laughs> well, and where okay. are they getting the food for the humans? Where are they right? getting the humans at this point? Like, that's oh, and the other then, person. yes, why yeah. would they, and why would you make an alliance with the Cylons if you knew right. they were going to exterminate your main food source? Right. Like. It, 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 yes. None <laughs> of that. Like, and this is where it is genuinely schlock, where it's just, if you give even a modicum of thought to these plots, they don't hold up terribly well. No, no, no. Um, I think it would have been really funny. This is my next point. I, I think it would have been really funny if they had thrown Muffet's alliances into question. Um, <laughs> at one point, Apollo that, says... I don't trust that dirty dagger. Yeah, at one point, Apollo does say, but he's being sarcastic, better have this drone checked. He's been listening awfully closely. Mm-hmm. I just think it would be hilarious to be like, hmm, I wonder who Muffet is really working for. Of course, he does appear to to be loyal to humans because uh, he knows something is up on that planet. Dan, should people always listen to Daggett's? Even robot Daggett's? Like- I think this is, yes. As we as we talked about in a previous episode, if the dogs or the Daggett's are barking, that is not a good sign. Always listen to the Daggett's. Also, I was a little disturbed that the only person they rescue is the social leader with a heart of gold. They're, oh right! They when when Starbucks and Apollo are any, down, yes, yeah. they don't appear, yeah. appear to put any any have no curiosity about <laughs> what's happening to any of the other people who appear to be being made into food cocooned sources. or something. It was it's not like they're in honeycombs. It's not exactly clear. And like this is where I was like, really, this was the most expensive show on television at the time. Like you could have paid a little more and like done some really better effects there. Speaking of which, for uh, androids, there's supposed to be an improvement on humans. The toasters, which is what they call them in you know, 2.0, mm-hmm. uh, sure are clumsy. And move real slow. The, the um, one exception to that, I don't know if you remember this, there was a very brief moment where I think either Boxy or Daggett come out of the elevator and suddenly like one of the Cylons like whips out his knife and like raises it really high. Yeah, I was actually, and I was like, also, Whoa. it looked like he was going to bludgeon him. Yes, like, exactly. I was like, why would you blood, like you have a laser? You have a like, laser pistol, <laughs> why aren't you firing? Like, it was, it was like one of those bizarre moments, and it was like, as, as I said, they generally move pretty slowly, but it was like, whoa, he got that sword out really quick. Yeah. Um, I also want to say that the, the award that they're going to be presented, Apollo, Boomer, mm-hmm. and Starbuck, is called the Golden Cluster. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like what you would call a really, really extreme fuck up. Um, <laughs> you know, that's just not a cluster, that's a golden cluster, that's what that is. And, you know, in general, like, I, I'm i going to segue into what, what actually, I, in general, I liked about this, if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah, please. It is surprisingly um, propulsive, even mm-hmm. though there are these huge plot holes. Like, right. I, I mean, I was surprised by it. Like, I wanted to keep watching. Yeah. Even though there are so many problems with it, you know? I think that's probably a testament to the strong acting kind of at the center of the show, um, mm-hmm. which again, Lauren Green, Terry Carter. Uh, you like Richard Hatch. 
Eh, I did. I'm not a huge fan of, of him in that role. He's not bad, though. He's right. I, let, let me put it this way. Dirk Benedict was bad. I don't think yeah. I'd re- like I'd always thought of him as like, oh, he's the really charismatic guy on this show and watching it again. And maybe this is a sign that I'm just more older and more mature. But like, I remember thinking Apollo was just a wuss of a character. And that was not what I thought watching the reboot. Where, And I was surprised there was a scene where Apollo basically just sort of like bitch slaps Adama saying, for the love of God, start leading. What are you doing? And like, I didn't I had forgotten that completely. Yeah. I, I mean, again, it's it's I can't quite put together why it remains like good watching yeah i know we're going to talk about it more when we make our final decision right. so what what did you find surprisingly good yeah. as i said i i did find uh richard hatch reasonably compelling as an actor i agree with you on lauren green also i'm not gonna lie the music is great i love the theme song i love the opening credits um people think of it as a star wars knockoff no it's better than a star wars knockoff it's not just an homage to john williams it's a legitimately good theme um and it's been running through my head for the last week as i've been watching this <laughs> You know, Dan, we have to move on. So um, I have a question. Yeah, Dan. Yes. Anna. Is there IR in this show? There is some IR in this show, believe it or not. Uh, there's some very obvious IR. Um, <laughs> I was but, gonna say. <laughs> but that said, you know, much <laughs> like there was obvious inequality. So one thing I'd forgotten is there is an actual debate in the show about whether or not humans should just pursue isolationism. Cyrus Uri at one point says, you know, the reason that we got into the war with Cylons was because we intervened to help this other planet. Um, maybe if we lay down our arms, uh, the Cylons will leave us alone now. I would say that, you know, Given that this show is happening during the sort of end of detente during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and and the United States, it seems pretty clear which side of the debate it's on. And I would say within the context of the show, also entirely appropriate if the Cylons have wiped out the entire 12 colonies and you think you're going to disarm and they're going to leave you alone, then you are really blinkered and wrong. One Um, has to ask, again, how did humans survive this long? So, so yeah, like the, the... the deck is stacked against isolationism. There are other sh- things we can talk about where maybe, you know, expansionism would be bad, but not in this show. Uh, I think a more interesting thing, actually, is the well, sort I, of... Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. To oh, yeah. But also, to continue on their voyage isn't exactly expansionism. They're refugees. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure what they're thinking. Like, you they're know, they're not actually colonists. Even they're refugees. No, they're refugees, and that actually would have been. And we'll get to this. Like, that was something I, I wish they had pushed the theme on a little more. But yeah, so like the I again, it's sort of it's a nonsensical debate in that in that one side is obviously right. There is also legitimately something interesting about civil military relations in this show. Uh, there's a there's a quote at one point that one of the members of the Council of Twelve says, which is, "Warriors are always la- the last to recognize the inevitability of change," and it's this sort of notion of oh these the civilians like oh I can't believe these military people are are resistant to to changing their ways, which. In a normal world would be an interesting debate, but in a world in which the Cylons have just launched a successful surprise attack makes no fucking sense whatsoever. So again, but it does tie into this notion that the show is generally viewed as conservative because Sam Huntington has written, the, you know, wrote a classic book called The Soldier and the State, uh, in which he argued that soldiers are usually the sort of traditional conservative institution within democracies. And I think that certainly applies within the realm of Battlestar Galactica. Can I ask a question about that? As yeah, a- go ahead theory or is a um yeah a theory of ir is that held to be true today because i i want to finish my thought which is that my family was all military Mm -hmm. and happened to have also been progressive which people think is weird but is not actually that weird Mm -hmm. in some ways like the military is a very egalitarian and meritocratic institution and 
my dad is still very into military history, very follows, you know, um, military news. And he, sometimes we talk about it and he points out is, of course, it's soldiers who hate the war, too. Like, yes. I mean, yes, you have a stereotype that is sometimes true of your bloodthirsty, you know, um, oh, guy that can't wait to get his hands into, you know, the, the button. Right. But there's also, and we've seen them in popular culture and we've seen them in the military, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people who, who, you know, the last thing they want to do is enter a battle. They realize the costs of it. And I think they also mm-hmm. can see change coming. Because where does innovation happen first? Military technology. Ooh, okay. All right. So I would say a few responses to this. The first is is that conservative is not the same thing as hawkish. Good point. And that so so you, I, I yes, as someone who has interacted a fair amount with the military, uh, no, they are among the least bloodthirsty people that you could possibly uh, imagine. And when I say conservative, I think what it means is is that they are slow to social change, but not unyielding to social change. You're right that that one of the things about at least one of the peculiarities about the U.S. military is that once they embrace a social change, they are often far more effective at implementing it than the the civilian aspects of their society. position on trans rights is yeah. actually almost radical. Right. Um, and so and by the way, so you're right that this is also changed somewhat, which I think has led to this sort of larger debate about woke politics and so forth, which I do not want to get into right okay. now. Um, but nonetheless, I would, let me put this way. Hunting a soldier in the state is still viewed as a classic. Obviously, civil military discourse has proceeded since then, but he wasn't wrong when he was writing what he was writing, I guess would be okay. the way to put it. Thanks, Professor. Yes. The final IR point is essentially the difficulty that autocrats have with credible commitment. Um, so, you know, we learned that, that Baltar cut a deal with the imperious leader saying, I will sell out all the rest of the 12 colonies, but you have to spare my colony and let me rule my colony. And then there is this hysterical exchange in the, the episode where Baltar complains, you know, he's been imprisoned. Uh, and he says, how, you know, ask the imperious leader, how can you change one side of a bargain? And the imperious leader answers, when there is no other side. And this is, of course, the problem with autocrats, which is if they actually do launch a successful attack like this, they have no reason to necessarily follow through on the credible commitment. And you would think Baltar would have known that, you know, which <laughs> therefore maybe he wouldn't have agreed to this in the first place, you know, which again does speak to the notion that Baltar version two is a superior character in multiple multiple ways, including intelligence, relative to Baltar 1. Agreed. I mean, there's some, like, like I said, there's some comedy there. Yeah. I am John interested... John Calicos does good Craven leader. Yes. I, I grant you that. Yes. yes. And I am yes. interested to see sort of how this plays out. I mean, I think I know... But, wow, am I really going to watch more of this? Dan, I think I might watch more of this. <laughs> no, I bought the whole series. I have to confess, I'm, I'm watching it as well, because I like it, it, it did hook me in, i got to admit. But this leads to our next point. Anna? Dan? Is there a critique of capitalism in this television show? Dan, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it, it is sort of along the lines of that kind of Mormon communitarianism more than it is like mm. a smash the class hierarchy idea. Yeah. There's definitely a call to share and share alike. But I don't think they're taking on capitalism here. You know, I actually am almost frustrated that it's not even given a lot of thought, as I've been saying I have real questions about what kind of economy exists in the flotilla, you know, like, yeah, because essentially they're refugees, right? Right. And and it's not like I mean, I think it this comes up a little bit in future episodes in terms of how things work. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one of these things where it, and this was the problem with this show in some ways, which is it raises a whole lot of questions and 
there was actually a lot of good grist they could have played with, but it didn't seem like they were terribly good at playing with it, I guess. Or like just not, not, yeah, not so much. I mean, yeah, I mean, just they could have done more. I mean, I don't want to criticize them too much because I think that they had other things on their mind and also kind of let's not get too sidetracked on a conversation about prestige television, but yeah, (laughs) you know, Battlestar Galactic was one in sort of the dawning era of prestige television, maybe 2.0. And one of the things it did was operate at a much slower pace. That's one of kind of the hallmarks of it. Right. Yeah. And this show had to move the pace that shows in the seventies moved. And so there's just not time to do a lot of that stuff. Although that's actually another way in which this is an interesting show because it does have it does have this world building which wasn't necessarily a big feature of television, you know, in the seventies. And there is a plot that goes along. There are characters that are recurring, and there's plot lines that are recurring, um, which you don't get obviously in the pilot. But it does actually happen. But it's again sort of sloppily constructed, nonetheless. Moving on. Yes. Dan, are there some themes we can talk about? <laughs> Um, I again, this goes to this point that we were just saying, which is that I think there are themes that they could have gone with, but they don't. And that was in some ways the most frustrating thing rewatching this. So as you say, one of the fascinating things about this show is that it's about refugees um, and it's about refugees in particularly crowded circumstances. And that should have created some pretty interesting social dynamics. That should be a wellspring for plots. There's a sort of quick aside where I think Starbuck and Cassiopeia are about to get it on. And Cassiopeia says basically like, well, let's go down this tube where the they launch the ships because where else? can we get privacy um which is a great point like you know it's a crowded fleet where else are you going to get privacy that would actually be interesting um to talk about a little bit but really it was just sort of a one sentence thing and they don't really discuss it later the other thing as i said before i this show is often viewed as sort of a conservative show in some ways the idea that it it the watchword is vigilance and the military is right. And it does raise some unsettling questions about democracy, particularly in the first part, given how stupid the Council of Twelve acts. On the whole, again, it's not that conservative, though, which is interesting. As you point out, it's sort of a Mormon brand of this, which is there is this discussion about how they've got members from all the 12 colonies there and how they does need to be some redistribution um, of the food situation and so forth. And that in some ways, Adama is the leader. It's not so much he's an authoritarian. It's more he's sort of, I, if anything, it's this sort of notion of wisdom, I mm-hmm. guess would be the way to put it. And that that's where his source of authority comes from, not from his established as, as commander, but from the fact that he actually might know a little more. And that's a more gentle version of it. Well, Dan, I picked up on some things. And yes. um, one of them is toxic masculinity. And- <laughs> sure if there's another kind of masculinity but um you know what no adama in all seriousness i don't know if adama presents it but like you know that this is actually an interesting conversation about whether or not there can be a non you know like adama does present the idea of a non-toxic masculinity this is true but there is sort of this warrior ethos thing that actually kind of gets a little uncomfortable for me Mm -hmm. and there's some funny asides if you start thinking about sort of the what do we think weapons stand for in the male psyche where Mm -hmm. like Apollo's talking about how much he loves to fly um I believe Cassiopeia well well, one of the women I feel bad that I can't say I can't remember who it is but uh, (laughs) he says to Starbuck you can't wait to get up there in your machine and there's this like general kind of like boys and their toys sort of attitude and then you know the stuff we've been talking about which is that you know only wimps want peace right like that's like yeah. that you are also not a man if you want peace that, that that's right. the that's the the contrast there 
I think I agree on the, I mean, obviously I agree on the refugee idea, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, 2.0, you know, actually engages in. Right. It's funny. One of the things I think we're both seeking from this version that it doesn't do, and I, I understand why, is, um, sort of digging into the realities of the situation, right? Yeah. And I wonder if that's sort of a hallmark of our kind of this generation or iteration of sci-fi is there's a real interest in like what would actually this feel like like that's what makes the expanse so fascinating right exactly yes i agree no this i think that's the case that there's some it's not so much verisimilitude it's the idea of if you're going to engage in this world building go all the way and again it's such an ambitious premise um, in some ways that that the follow through is disappointing. And that's the, the thing that leads to the letdown. Also, in terms of the toxic masculinity, Anna, if you if you are going to watch further episodes of the show, I have to warn you, the episode after the pilot is going to drive you bonkers because it's an episode where all the colonial warriors get sick. So the women have to be pilots. Oh, um, no. Oh, yes. It's, you know, it's, women drivers. <laughs> it. I mean, to be fair, they do a good job. I'm not saying like they don't do a good job, but like it, it we'll talk when you watch that okay. episode. It, it's a fascinating. There, there's a scene where if you actually manage not to throw something at the television or the, the, your computer screen, I will be very impressed. Well, you know, this actually brings us to our next section. Yes. Loved it. Hated it. Dan. <laughs> okay. What I loved, uh, the jackets are still cool. Those jackets still you know, still hold up. I am glad to say that I still like them. The world building is legitimately fascinating. And like, it, as it's, it really was a good, clever, interesting premise. And so that was good. And while you might not have been as, as enamored of with the, the actresses' performances on this show, the actress who played Athena is lovely. And Gene Seymour in particular is very nice to look at. Um, I, although and, I almost didn't recognize her. I mean, she is young. You know, yeah. like, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. once they said it was Jane Seymour, I was like, oh, well, yeah, that is Jane Seymour. But and, and she does, like I said, she sort of stands out among the female characters as some doing right. some actual acting. So Yes, exactly. Uh, and she's the mother of Boxy in the, you know, as you, as you discover. And <laughs> also so and she, only brought up she, his she, name like twice. I love it. I know. And, and she was a reporter, you know. So Although I, she I, has one of the silliest lines in, <laughs> in the reporting scene. It's people yes. are running everywhere. <laughs> It's not. <laughs> I mean, maybe she's a radio know. reporter. Like, it sure looks she's like she's doing some kind of video. But like, <laughs> so I hate to say this. What I what I thought was, no, this is like the the fluff content for the news because it's like I'm covering. She's covering like the celebration, not thinking that she's got to do hard news reporting. So That's maybe true. that was what was That's going true. on. You know, All right. yeah. All right. In terms of hated, we talked about this before. There is a scene between Starbuck and Athena that is just god awful, in which basically Starbuck. Uh, intrudes onto Athena as she's getting dressed. You know, it's just all sorts of uncomfortable. It's badly written. It's badly acted. The only real moment in the entire thing is when at one point Starbucks actually seems to approach Athena and Athena like closes the locker on herself more closely so Starbucks can't see her. And I was like, okay, now I'm actually, that was actually a, a genuine moment. Beyond that, you know, the the lazy plotting and writing is just still there. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not good. And finally, as we said before, Muffet, just the fact that they used a chimpanzee makes that even more horrifying. It's going to be hard for me to watch, honestly. Yeah. Like, knowing that. That's pretty terrible. All right, Anna, what did you love and hate? I would buy one of those jackets today. (laughs) And I wanted to apologize, actually. I was thinking about it. Like, Dan, 
you know, it would be a change in your look, but you could rock it. You could really make it work. I believe I'm, ro- I'm starting to have 70s hair at this point, frankly. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, you know yeah. revise and extend my remarks. Okay. I think if they ever go on sale, you should definitely buy one. Um, <laughs> and there's a part of me also that kind of grooves on the capes. <laughs> Maybe more Even- dress uniform should have capes. I don't know. <laughs> I like the capes. The capes were interesting. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, it, well, yeah. you know what? I, I always, yeah. I have respect for shows that take place in whatever alternate universe or far in the future right. where they mm-hmm. don't presume that fashion stays exactly the same. Right. There's always that frustrating thing where, like, you're assuming, like, you're in the future in the 1970s. And of course, everyone else has, in the future, they're wearing wide collars, apparently, which is sort of silly. But Although like, it is yes, like the Paul Reiser character, you know, in Aliens, Aliens? has, like, the weird yeah. jacket collar. But I always like that. that was there's good. a part of me that's like, but hey, at least they did something, you know? Right, exactly. Because yeah, yeah. when you think about it, if things are set that far in the future, right, it's like, and they assume we're all still wearing the same clothes, it's like us wearing, like, bloomers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> corsets, like women wearing corsets or something. So, I mean, fashion about time. I too, no. <laughs> <laughs> as far as so, um, yes. So, in a weird way, although I critiqued the costumes, part of me kind of liked them. They grew on me. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I've already said the Adama Ty relationship. I think is fantastic. Two great actors, and it's also there's some lightness to it that yeah. makes it work as well. Um, it's not just mm-hmm. all. You know, like, uh, we have to lead these people to, right, to exactly. the 13th colony. Hated it. Uh, there's some sexism. Yep, there oh, is. Yes. Special effects. I know that there, it was the times they were in. Yeah. But I think what I would say is less could have been more. You know, <laughs> like, just don't show that much. Just imply. In fact... That could have worked really well, and it's sometimes something that I notice on other shows is where they the battles have brief scenes, and what you mainly see is sometimes a little more realistic. You see the chatter between the pilots. You see right. like the aircraft control like calling in, and that mm-hmm. you can actually generate a fair amount of tension. You know, like right. using those with at, 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 with low effect or with minimal effects. I agree. Yeah, yeah, um, and then you know whatever Muffet, Boxy, it's just. Yeah, we got everyone acknowledges this, and yes. All right. Let us move, let us move on to finally. Let us render this judgment. Uh, you know, schlock or awe, Anna. I would say I, we can give mixed opinions on this, right? Is it really yes, a binary choice? Can. Okay. No, it's not. No. I would say mostly schlock, but some mm-hmm. awe. And if you are a fan of you know 2.0, you should watch this. I mean, at least these yeah. first three episodes, because I think. It will both give you, you know, you'll you'll have more respect for the second version and the changes they made. But you'll also be able to see they were working with good material. Like there was like right. the bones of a really good show in this show. And I think it, it sort of helps you contextualize what they did and what they didn't do, what they didn't change. And yeah. I, th- I think that's that's worthwhile. And, you know, <laughs> it raises all these interesting questions. <laughs> It doesn't really explore them or seek to answer them, but it raises right. them. So, but at least it actually asks them. No, this was literally what I thought was this is this is these are good bones. In other words, there's a reason why they rebooted the show, and in some ways, the the, the reboot 
answers both questions, which is, of course, it was schlocky. Um, there were multiple ways in which it could be improved, not just because, you know, times have changed but and the special effects are better, but also because, as we said, there were lots of themes that were sort of nascent in the original version that, that they actually play with more. But that said, it was a good enough show that meant that it was worth rebooting that it could actually uh, provide some sort of interesting commentaries on, you know, again, refugees, on how we deal with machines. And by the way, that's actually something that I think the reboot does much better in terms of just the idea of you. there is a machine intelligence out there that you have to deal with. Well, it's not dealt with at all. The, the idea the that we one. built, we. <laughs> right. Humans built the Cylons because that... For one, Which is different from how the version one has it. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's a yeah. very hand-wavy thing, right? Yeah. Whereas the 2.0 brings up the moral questions right. of what does it mean to create life? What is life? Mm-hmm. What are slaves? When something has an intelligence and a personality and agency, when you take control of that thing, isn't that mm-hmm. a form of slavery? Isn't yeah. that injustice? You know, that just doesn't come up. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yes. So, but but I think we're agreed. Like, yes, mostly shock, a little bit of awe, and you know, again, props to Ron Moore for looking at this and thinking there was something really, really good that you could do from it. And I think he was justified in in the end in that uh, in that impulse. Dan, does it make you want to watch the two point more? It actually does, to tell you the truth. So I I'm, I I might uh, I might start watching two point I watched the original miniseries and, and the first season, but I'm going to have to do a little bit more. Our listeners are clamoring. There so. we go. All right. I will do it. Do we want to enter the debris field? Yes. Let Not us the minefield, the... but the debris field. <laughs> yes. Uh, we've talked a lot about this show. Really, I only have one little comment for the debris field, which is there is a casual moment in which uh, Adama says they're going to have to find Earth and explaining that Earth is in another galaxy. Okay. This is where the hard sci-fi in me came out um, because... There is no fucking way that they could have traveled between galaxies. Like, that's not how it works. The galaxies are really, you know, if you think star (laughs) systems are far away from each other, galaxies are like, you know, much easier. And and the show makes it clear that the only, the fastest they can go is light speed. So if I think if they had traveled by light speed, it would take something like, you know, thousands of years between here and Andromeda, much less, you know, whatever their sort of star system is. And so, so the thing that always frustrates me with these shows when they're they're poorly written like this is that they sort of conflate galaxy universe star system all of that and i'm like it's not that fucking complicated all right there's a solar system there's a galaxy there's a universe you could even do quadrants or what have you it's just like just get your shit together sorry i think i've covered almost everything i will reiterate that muffet is terrifying and i i doubt muffet's allegiances and (laughs) i think that the cylons are too clumsy to be really good villains and mm-hmm. I do kind of want to go as a fighter for Halloween this year Ooh, to cool. the extent that I ever dress up for anything for Halloween. Quite frankly, that's I mean, I love a good excuse. You would. You would <laughs> yeah, no, you would. You would. You would look like Starbook 2.0. So I would I want to, you know, let me know if you do this. That would be All awesome right. to see. So I think we can sort of wrap up now. Uh, this has been yeah. really fun as usual. I'm I mm-hmm. actually I'm glad you recommended it, Dan. Oh, thank you. Anna. <laughs> And we should end by reminding people that uh, they can pay us if they want to, although we are always just happy to have listeners. Tell your Mm -hmm. friends and neighbors. If you want to review, if you do not want to give us money, I will say review and rate. 
because that yes. is in some ways more valuable if you want people to find this show. Uh, right now, we have a very small but dedicated community of listeners, and I love each and every one of you. <laughs> Me too. But I wish I wish there were a little more of you, maybe. Uh, so spread okay. the word, and also, uh, but enjoy the intimacy of the community while you can. Get on that Discord. Mm-hmm. It's uh, some great conversations happening. We have a day jobs channel where I intended it to be a riff on you and I talking about our day jobs. Ah. But it's so funny when you put ideas out into the world and what people do with them. What mm-hmm. happened is people are talking about their day jobs and their backgrounds. And so people oh, interesting. have posted sort of how they came to be sci-fi fans, why they're interested in IR. Uh, it, it's cool. really cool. And Excellent. I do love it when communities kind of take an idea and run with it. And that's, that's actually the beauty of fan culture, right? That's fan yes. culture. So, Absolutely. And you can be in the Discord channel with just $3 a month. For $5 a month, you get the episodes early and can join the AMAs. And mm-hmm. then, you know, up from there, there's like t-shirts involved and whatnot. And uh, we have over 100. We are intimate, but still over 100 patrons. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be working on that patrons-only episode. Upcoming AMA, I believe this episode will drop the friday before the ama yes so for our patrons who are the only ones who will be listening to the ama a reminder that uh we will be doing the ama on uh saturday may 1st and dan do you want to remind folks what we will be covering Yes. Uh, so next week, uh, I believe we're going to be doing Falcon and Winter Soldier because uh, that's coming to an end. Uh, then we will be doing Altered Carbon, the book, and followed that up with Starship Troopers, the movie. A little behind the scenes action, which is uh, we don't program this real strictly. So yeah, <laughs> we roll with the punches here. And also, we are willing to kind of throw things up and and do an emergency broadcast every once in a while. I really enjoyed our Justice League episode. So <laughs> if people want to weigh in on something that they think need our needs our immediate attention, right. um, we are very much willing to do that. Yeah. And until then, Dan, keep this channel open for more. <laughs>